Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. The closest thing to a perfect stock market indicator. We're going to go over that in a little bit. Plus, is government debt risk-free? Treasury bonds, are they risk-free or is it junk? And do you want an AI chat box for your advisor? A chat bot? Morgan Stanley seems to think so. And finally, is the consumer weak or strong? There seems to be a big debate about that going on, even within some... Um, Um, listeners and clients of Revere, we're trying to figure out, is this a soft landing or are the wheels coming off? We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to go to the mailbag and then we're going to go to Team Revere uh, later. But that just caught my eye. I love the, the, the title, the closest thing to a perfect stock market indicator. Folks, I'll tell you what, it's kind of clickbait. I'll be completely honest. It's the same article we rehashed about a month or two ago where we talked about The Economist, that periodical and Time Magazine and how when they say on the cover, you know, the market's awesome or you need to buy this, that's like Amazon in 1999, they're calling the top. They're great contrarian indicators. And The Economist is on the top of the list. So if you're reading The Economist and you're trying to take investment advice, normally doing the opposite of what they say is is the best course of action. In any event, that's, and then, I loved this. There's a couple little smaller items that I'm just going to quickly go. There's a, I put some articles in the show notes that you can read for planning. I, it's kind of boring and bland, so I don't want to dive into the show about it too much. But there's uh, an article about two facts about annuity issue, issuers you need to know if you're actually planning on doing some type of annuity. We're not a huge fan. But now with interest rates at 5 and 6%, fixed annuities are actually becoming a reasonable uh, guaranteed fixed safe investment. Whereas just two years ago with the interest rates, they were absolutely worthless, but they were still selling them nonetheless. Anyway, um, where uh, the next, the other one was the Medicare premiums are increased. They're increasing them this year. Don't get caught up with just the premium amounts. There's much more um, you got to look at the big picture. You've got the alphabet soup, the ABCD, and all the supplemental uh, uh, things. It's not just about the premiums. If you need help on that, we've got a specialist that we use. Out, I refer people to them. All he does is Medicare. All he does is the Medicare insurance. So if you need some help with that. But now, to the two main topics, risk-free government debt factor fiction. Okay? 
And it says most uh, most investors believe U.S. government desk is risk free. That's what every economic and financial textbook, the media outlets and even the bond gurus say so. Not me. I don't. Um, uh, and it also used to be a fact that the earth was flat and they had, quote, health cigars. That's in the article. In any event, here's what he said. So the reason this article came around is Fitch downgraded the U.S. government debt from AAA to AA plus just recently. And he said the recent downgrade was ridiculous, the Arthur. Now, the S&P already downgraded uh, uh, the uh, U.S. debt like in 2011. So Fitch was really the last one to keep the government debt at AAA rating. It says, first, why does government uh, have a debt rating? The Treasury and the Fed can print money to ensure it never defaults. So they have no default risk. Now, the question is, what's your dollars going to be worth? Folks, it's all about purchasing power. How much of those dollars will buy you some health insurance, some housing, shoes, and food, right? Secondly, this is important, applying traditional metrics to government debt ratings um, if you're going to apply traditional credit ratings, it should be way below AAA or even AA. In fact, he's saying it should be junk. It should be C. He said, treating the government like a company, uh, it, we found that it incurred losses in all but four of 40 years. Imagine a company could lose money for 37 out of 40 years and still be rated AA. Now, of those four years, some of that was accounting manipulation. Clinton uh, took the federal, the treasury debt and took it from long term down to shorter term because the interest rate was lower. And so we made us dependent on shorter term debt that you have to roll over every couple years. So it made our interest expense lower. It made our, in, our, it made our numbers look better, but it makes us riskier because now you got to refinance every couple years. And just like on your mortgage, if interest rates rise, now you got to refinance at higher rates. Guess what? The government is now at higher rates. Now we get to refinance that $30 trillion of debt over at higher rates. Um, in any event, it says, when Fitch calculates a company's debt service coverage ratio, DSCR, it compares the cash flows of the debt to the, the company's ability to pay. So with our government, you got 30 trillion, he has billion in this article, but it's wrong, 30 trillion and 3 trillion in tax receipts. That means it's got a coverage of uh, 10, just under 10. But here's the prof problem. That's the sales for a company is not the profit. They've got expenses. Well, the government has expenses. And not only does it spend all of that $3 trillion, it adds another two trillion onto the to the to the uh, uh, debt, and basically it says this firmly puts uh, treasury bonds into junk bond territory between B and triple C. Now, what does that mean? Does it really matter? Well, what that really means is you will get your money back, but you don't know what those dollars are worth. Therefore. The treasury risk, the default risk, or the inflationary risk is on you, not the government. The government has no risk. All the risk is on you. And what is your purchasing power going to be? All right. That's, that's, uh, that's um, 
uh, called Keynesian economic. I'm sorry, that's called Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics, which is how uh, families have to live. They've got to spend what they what they earn. They can't go into too much debt, which leads me to my next topic. And to do that, I'm going to go to the mailbag. Okay, so this was nine. This was nine one, and this was from ND. She's a client and a and a, and a listener, and she was responding to uh, another person that was talking about if it, last week, if you go back to show notes, they were talking about every on the in the media. You hear how the consumers kind of getting strapped and they may be having trouble. But she went out and she went to the casinos and everybody was spending money, and she said it seems like the consumer is very strong and spending money on vacations. So this was a response to that. It says, uh, regarding consumers stronger or weak from last week, listening to weekly podcast, y'all are talking about the resilient consumer who seems to be financing purchases. We have known for some time that credit is what's driving demand. I think we've reached a tipping point. Here is an article, it's in the show notes, uh, from Reuters. And basically, it's talking about um, the uh, rising student, well, student loan payments are about to resume because they were unconstitutional to write them off anyway. And so now all of a sudden, people that got a, a furlough from or, or a hiatus from their student loans, now they got to start paying those again. But also, consumer loan delinquency is on the rise significantly, and the labor market is softening. Uh, but anyway, uh, it says, I think we're in some rocky times ahead. I uh, also I noticed on the Fed's website, this article is also on the show notes. Anytime I read a line that says these resolution plans, also known as living wills, describe a bank's holding company strategy for rapidly and orderly resolution under bankruptcy under the event of material financial distress or failure. Thanks for being willing to look at these things I send you and keep up uh, the good work at Revere. I'm relying on y'all to steer the ship through the pending storm. Um, um, anyway, the article from the Fed is, is uh, called Agencies Proposed Guidance to Enhance Resolution Planning at Large Banks. Why does the Fed always have to have these long, long names for these things? Why can't they just call it uh, Bank Survival Plan? Uh, you know, make it simple so people understand it. I think they're trying to hide it so you don't read all the stuff that's in there. In any event, um, this is basically the bankruptcy Armageddon scenario. And after 2008, the Fed beefed up these retirement uh, re requirement and contingency plans. But here's the real question. Did the Fed create an environment where these SNL savings and loans and regional banks are going to be forced to be swallowed by the large member banks? Remember, the Fed caused this inflation, and the Fed causes boom and bust cycles. That's the Keynesian economy, economist, e economics I was talking about. And it is now trying to curb it. Well, this is what we're going to be talking about on the show, The Consumer. Now, this article is talking about the Fed set to double growth rates. And that is really the key here. Because the Atlanta GDP now Fed tracker is looking at like 5%, 5.6 actually, that's unofficial. And they've seen a sharp upturn in GDP. But then in the back of the article, it's talking about what, like I said, the Bloomberg economics, student loan payments, consumer delinquencies rising, uh, and then consumption will likely, this is Bloomberg economists, will likely weaken in Q4. So folks,
At the end of an economic expansion, credit consumer delinquencies do go up. Credit card debt levels go up. In fact, I think they're at the highest at all time. They may not be the highest at all time, but they're very high right now. And delinquencies are starting to go up and the interest rates have gone up. So here's the question. Yes, the consumer was strong because the Fed sent out trillions of money during the COVID shutdown. People beefed up their bank accounts. They had savings. They had money in the bank. Then the Fed opened or the government opened up the economy. Things started picking up and we started having this massive inflation because guess what? The Fed didn't suck out all the money they put in there. And when you open up the economy and the velocity of money starts turning over, ergo inflation. Austrian economists knew this. Keynesian said, oh, it's fine. In fact, they're promoting MMT, modern monetary theory, where you can just print as much as you want. Don't worry about it. Well, if that's the case, just print me a million bucks and drop it in the mail to me. In any event, where are we? Are we going to accelerate with growth or is the consumer strapped out and we're actually starting to stall? Quite frankly, nobody really knows the answer just yet. And it also depends on what the Fed decides the next couple of rounds. If they pause, we have a much better chance of having a soft landing. But if they continue to rise, raise rates, then we've got some serious headwinds. But either way, I don't, I, I know that I don't know all the answers, but I know as it starts to occur, I'll see it. And here at Revere, we don't make forecast out a year because there's too many things that can come out of left field that I don't know today that will make apparent. And so whatever forecast I try, I can tell you what I think is going to happen in, in, in 12 months, but it would just be coincidence if I was actually right. So at Revere, we measure what is happening while it's happening and make adjustments accordingly. That will correspond to an occasional whipsaw now and again, but especially trying to establish a new uptrend. But it ensures that you're not going to have a major market meltdown in the next bear market. You're not going to go through a bear market like the market does. And we feel that's a, a reasonable trade-off. In any event, let's go to Team Revere and what the market uh, markets are telling us. Don? Thanks, Dan. That was just absolutely riveting. I know you love that kind of economic stuff. Uh, Don's, Don's, answer, Don's answer to everything, folks, is three words. Follow the charts. Go ahead, that's Don. That's correct, sir. That's <laughs> correct. Right on it you are. Oh, hang on. So, I, I got to tell a quick story. So the very first time Don came on, he, we had this, I had this whole segment. I wanted to talk about these charts of the growth. And Tim and I were talking about how this set up or whatever. We were setting up the economic environment. And I said, well, Don, it looks kind of scary. What do you think? And he looks at me and goes, just follow the charts. <laughs> and that was it. And I said, Don, you understand this is radio, right? It's, it's imagery of the mind. You've got to create a word picture so the people can follow in their cars. So anyway, go ahead, Don. So All that's right. why we started the video. That's why we started the video version so people could actually follow the charts and watch what Don's doing that's while he's right. talking. All right, Don, take it so. Go ahead. You, you, mean it, you mean it this time? I can actually I, I go? I do. I do. And I didn't bring football okay. season starting up either. I know uh, you want to talk about season. that. Love football. 
want to talk about the Jaguars, but we won't. We're going to talk about the markets. And uh, let's go back to the August 29th follow-through day, which uh, is an O'Neill concept. When you look for a market bottom, when you're coming out of a, uh, what's part of a mild or a serious correction, the, the rules are the same. And really what you're looking for is uh, off the bottom, uh, prefer and the bottom recently was on August 18th, okay? That's where we put in the bottom. Then you'd look for something called the follow through day, which is a uh, the market and preferably the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100 uh, up a substantial amount, normally one and a quarter percent on higher volume than the prior day. On August 24th, NVIDIA came out with their earnings. Well, they came out the prior night. Uh, but it looked like we were gapping up and it was day four and actually it was day five and we were going to get our follow through day, but we had an ugly reversal. I'm going to go to the, uh, that was this day here. I'm going to go to a 30 minute chart. We had a gap up. Uh, one thing it, with gap ups is when they happen and we've already had a significant run, they're higher risk. We were also running right in uh, to some resistance with this level. If you look back over here, on the left side of the chart. So it wasn't really a surprise that it failed, uh, but the next day uh, we went down further and then came back up to the upside and then fast forward to the eighth day off the bottom, we had a legitimate follow through day out of the blue. Uh, we opened flat on the markets and then at 10 o'clock some economic data came in that the markets looked at favorably and we had a follow through day. Uh, this is this gives you the green light to look at uh, leading stocks and leading sectors that are at low risk entry points or coming out of bases. We had three pretty decent days up after that, but then over the last three days, interest rates started to spike again. We got some positive economic, which the market is not wanting because any positive data points to the fact that the Fed may continue raising rates. And as we know, raising rates are a major um, headwind uh, for stocks. So the S&P 500 this week broke below its 21 and 50 day moving averages. Uh, we had three pretty harsh days down this week. Uh, today we opened flat and we're trying to get back into or above those moving averages on the S&P 500. Now the NASDAQ 100 has shown relative strength while it was while we were coming off these lows. You can see that based on this blue line trending higher. Uh, but it did have a pretty two pretty harsh days, uh, including a gap down yesterday. But that gap down yesterday was bought immediately right at the open. And that's a good thing. It also corresponded with this 370 level on uh, the NASDAQ 100. If you look over here, 370 was a prior resistance area. You see 370 here, resistance 370 here. We failed immediately, gap above 370. We finally broke above it on the follow through day four days up, 370, we opened right at it, a little bit of a shakeout, and uh, we trended higher all day yesterday, closed flat today, and buyers came in right after uh, the open. So this took that back. Yesterday was an undercut and reclaim, so in other words, a false breakdown on the NASDAQ 100 versus the 50-day moving average and the 21-day. We look for these all the time because it gives you, it says, A, the market has stopped going down, 
any possible change in direction is at hand and it also gives you a line in the sand because you shouldn't break below the low of that day change in trend is going to uh, stay in place so today got back above at higher high versus yesterday and also back above the 21 and the 50-day moving average this is a really low risk entry point for the nasdaq 100 and we bought qld which is a two times the qqq uh, we've got a couple of uh, stocks of the big seven acting so-so, but we've got some that are acting very well. Uh, Apple looks like it had a shakeout yesterday, so we took a position in this. It looks like a very low-risk entry, and our stop is simply below the low of the prior day. So where are we uh, in summary? We're trying to come off the bottom. The NASDAQ 100 has gotten back above. This is as of noon Eastern time on Friday. The NASDAQ 100 has gotten back above its 50 and its 21 day moving average. The S&P 500 are fighting to get back above the 50 and the 21 day moving average. Uh, and we'll, we'll keep an eye on some individual names. And the thing that's really stood out about this week is that while the indexes were pulling back, leading stocks were acting significantly better. So if you look at a weekly chart on the S&P 500 for the week, we're down over a percent. The NASDAQ 100 uh, on a weekly chart is also down over percent 1.1, but 19 of my 21 uh, leading stocks from the 2121 list that I update, only two, three of them had broken the 21 day moving average and two of them reclaimed it this morning. So leading stocks are holding up just fine. In fact, they're holding up better than the indexes this week, but you got to remember the indexes are dominated by those big seven stocks. One, and then we look always, uh, for sector rotation and energy continues to be uh, we've been in NRGU. This is a three times, it takes the, the 10 of the biggest oil names in the world, and it takes 10% of each of them for a position. So it's very concentrated uh, and it's triple leverage. So we limit our size on something like this because like a 3% size is like taking a 10% position or a 9% position in energy. And you can see how this is showing serious relative strength. You look at the relative strength line and in fact, it broke out today. And if you look at the underlying 10 names in this, I reviewed them uh, in one of the, uh, the, one of the recent videos, they're, they all look the same. They're all breaking out and we're seeing that with a bunch of other energy names. So, sector rotation uh, into energy, pullback in tech stocks, uh, false breakdown yesterday in the NASDAQ 100. We got to see if that can reclaim it. Uh, stops below Thursday's lows are incredibly important both for the indexes and for stocks and how they're acting relative to those indexes. And as usual, we take it day by day, keep our lists refreshed, see how they're acting and look for low risk entry points. All right, Don. I'm hey, sure you, I'm sure you have a question. Oh, no, that was so or, good. I don't have anything. That was perfect. Now, I Wow, I, bookmark this, Zach. Yeah, I'm going to write bookmark that in my this. diary this it. day on what is today, the 8th, 9th. Uh, Don hit it perfect. Hit it perfect. Um, um, it's the 8th. <laughs> it's the 8th, okay. Uh, I do want to ask you, I want to bring this up because we actually are, we have contracted, we're using a data scientist to actually analyze some of our data and actually look at these. He's a quant guy and he's looking and helping you determine the optimum position sizing among other things. That's not the only thing he's doing. Can you kind of 
uh, just quickly highlight that or review that, kind of tell the listeners about that a little bit? Absolutely, Dan. So here is um, every night uh, when we when I do the videos, part of the review is the portfolio slash RVAB. That stands for Revere Volatility Adjusted Beta. Back in the spring of 2021, leading stock, uh, growth stocks had been having just an absolutely fantastic run after COVID. Uh, we gained in our protection strategy almost 50% that year, and it carried over uh, to January and halfway through February. Uh, and then out of the blue, interest rates broke out of a range, and all of these growth stocks start, started getting really smacked. And at the time, we had little exposure to the indexes because growth stocks were acting very well. Uh, but our portfolios took a took a hit. Let's just say we gave back more of the profits from the prior year than we wanted to, and it sent uh, sent us on a quest to better quantify exactly how much risk we had. At that time, we were only quantifying risk based on beta of the portfolio. Uh, but the ATR, the average true range, how wide stocks move on a daily basis. Uh, at that time, it was about 1% for the S&P 500, which is about what it is now. But the ATR on a lot of these stocks was 5, 6, 7%. So if you move down one ATR on uh, the S&P 500, but these stocks also move down one ATR, and you have a bunch of them in your portfolio, uh, you're going to take a much bigger hit then is what's showing on the indexes. And that uh, February of 2021 kicked off a stealth bear market in growth leaders. The indexes held up fine. Money flowed out of these speculative growth stocks into bigger cap uh, stocks. And nobody really noticed that the growth half of the mid cap and the small cap indexes was getting decimated. Uh, so this led us to do a better way of quantifying our risk other than just using beta. And we brought ATR into the equation and just kind of, we didn't have any sophisticated backtesting tools. So we, we kind of eyeballed it, went back, uh, looked at what the values would have been on these different, on some different names at different periods in time. And we settled on, uh, a percentage of ATR and a percentage of uh, beta, and we combine it and give every position a score, add up that score, and that tells us what the true risk is. So uh, the S&P 500 is 1.0 beta. It's also in 1.0 Revere volatil volatility adjusted beta because that's the baseline. Uh, but you can have 1.0 uh, we can have a beta of 1.0, but we would have significantly less than uh, 100% in the S&P 500. In, in other words, if your entire uh, portfolio was at 1.0 in the S&P 500, that's what the value would be. If we calculated this and we had 1.0, uh, we could also at the same time have 45% cash because we're weighting the risk of all these individual growth names to come up with our true volatility adjusted beta. And um, Ted and Connor joined us. They were interns going back to last fall. Uh, and uh, they were telling me about this, uh, a friend of theirs that they knew. They, again, it goes back to their uh, middle school soccer team. They all keep in touch. Uh, and this guy is a data scientist at DePaul. He's a senior. And I got in touch with him and he showed me some of the things we could do. And we agreed on certain parameters to run back tests on reasonable portfolios that we would have 
and come up with a way to fine tune our metrics for how much we should actually be using average true range and how much we should be using beta. And we're running ongoing tests. And one thing we know for sure is that our metrics are going to change. And we're going to, we'll slowly implement this over time as the results of these different back tests come over. So just a better way to quantify the risk uh, of all the holdings that we have in the portfolio and then benchmark that to what's going on in the overall market. So we know exactly how risky uh, our portfolios are outside of just a pure uh, beta uh, Right, right. Okay, let me put my Don Turpiter on because that was pretty deep diving. So, Don, so so we have a formula for how 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 far below the stock we want a stop loss. So Don was saying like if you've got a stock that moves four percent a day, average true range or five percent a day, if you have a stop loss at five or six percent, just two down days and you're or one down day and you're stopped out. So you need to have maybe a nine or ten percent, eleven percent stop loss. Well, if you're going to have it that wide, you need a smaller position size. For something that's not as volatile, you can have a larger position size so that every stock in the portfolio is standardized, sort of, so that if it hits its stop, it has the same effect, detrimental effect to the portfolio as a whole. In other words, it'll only have a negative 0.2 or 0.3% effect on the total portfolio, right? So originally we were Perfect. using, and I'm yep. just, I can't remember the exact thing, but I think it's uh, 20, uh, 75 or 70% beta and 30% ATR, right? Something like that. And yeah, we started with, we started with 80% uh, ATR and 20% beta, but then uh, as we add more uh, index exposure to the portfolio, uh, you, you, you comment, it kind of, and the statistics played this out, uh, you can kind of dial that back for the overall portfolio. So really we were, when the original, uh, calculation was done, it was thinking, well, we just had a portfolio of growth stocks. You had all stocks, this right, was, right? This was, yeah, all stocks. So, um, and the latest was 70%, um, uh, ATR, yeah, and so, 30% beta, but, but we're going to, we're going to be significantly ratcheting down the ATR. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so percentage the point, of the portfolio. Yeah, the point is, we were thinking that we wanted a, a, a bigger AT, a bigger ATR and more beta, and it turns out that it's going to be just the opposite, or we actually want to do it the other way based on the data. So we're going to be fine yeah, tweaking ba that and based on the port. Yeah, and based on the portfolio composition. Because, yeah, each, uh, yes, because the yes, because the intercorrelations with each other is very important. Right. It's not just about right. the individual stock position. It's about the portfolio in total. So in any event, yep. well, that, that, that was a good explanation. If, for, for you stock nerds that really like the technical stuff, if you got more questions, you can reach out to us and we can kind of explain that a little bit later. All right. Before we go to the stock guys, uh, the uh, uh, Ted and Connor uh, going to uh, uh, their segments, I want to go to Michael because Michael's uh, going to explain ETF, EPS. He's going to the fundamentals and he's going to talk about how he – how, how the, the right way to uh, uh, calculate e earnings per share, Mike? So yeah, um, EPS, I'm sure most of you know, it stands for earnings per share. So what does that really mean? Earnings per share, it's you've got your net income, so the profit that the company is generating, divided by all of the shares that are outstanding. 
I have done a video that will be posted later where I dive into uh, different ways of calculating the shares outstanding because you've got basic EPS, which is the current amount of shares, but then you've also got diluted EPS, which then also calculates potential new shares that can be issued by the company. But I'll dive into that a little more on, on the video and you'll, you'll see that. But uh, for now, for the podcast, I wanted to talk about something really important, which is adjusted EPS. And on MarketSmith, what you'll notice is you've got your column, for example, Uber here, you've got your EPS column, and it shows you what the earnings per share is per year. And then if you go to the weekly chart, it'll actually show you per quarter. And all of these earnings numbers, they come from a website called FactSet. And they're all adjusted earnings per share. What does adjusted mean? So adjusted is a non-GAAP measure where the company can actually, to give you a better picture of how their business is doing, there's unusual one-time expenses. It could be, uh, th th there's a lot of things that can happen in a business that are one-off events that'll change those earnings. It'll change their profit for that quarter, but it's not expected to continue. So what the companies can do is they can adjust their profit for that quarter and take out those expenses. So the EPS figures adjusted, they're always going to adjust higher. You'll never see an adjusted <laughs> EPS that's lower than the, the basic, uh, the, the gap EPS. But it's to, to give an idea of, of what they believe is a true reflection of the profitability of the business. And something that, that I've noticed that I'm not the only one. I actually learned this from, uh, if you've ever heard of Jim Chanos, he's a famous short seller, but he's a professor at, at uh, I think it's Duke. Uh, he's very sophisticated investor and, and understands financials really well. And something that a lot of technology companies do is one of these supposed one-off expenses are actually stock-based compensation charges. So what a lot of these companies will do is they'll add back stock-based compensation to their, to their net income. And if you'll notice, a, a company I wanna use, for example, is RingCentral, because there was a discussion I saw on Twitter about it recently. And I just wanted to point out how sometimes these adjusted numbers can be a little misleading and you should do some more work on it. If you go to ticker RNG and you see their most recent quarter, they, they published their adjusted EPS number is 83 cents per share. Now, if you look at their numbers year over year, quarter over quarter, their earnings continue to grow. It looks like the business is super profitable. They're earning in, in 2022, they earned $2 per share. That's, that's impressive the year before $1.34, it looks pretty good. It looks like this is a profitable company, but is that is that a true reflection of the business? So what you wanna do as an investor is you can look at those numbers to get to get a, a sort of idea of what, what the company is, is projecting, but then you should go, I highly recommend doing this for any company you wanna invest in, go to their actual website, go to investor relations. And if we go to Ring Central, for example, if we go to their investor relations, you'll see under the financial results, you'll see their earnings releases. So if you go to their Q2 earnings release, and I'll, I'll, I can show, I can do another video where I show how to do this. We don't have to do it now, but I just want you to know that if you go to their investor relations, their earnings release, you'll see that they report their actual gap EPS number 
but then they say the adjusted number. And then if you continue scrolling down, you'll see different tables and there's one table and for Ring Central specifically, it's table five where it's called the reconciliation of net income gap measures to non-gap measures. So what you have there is it starts off with that gap net loss and it shows the amount. And in this case for 2023, the most recent quarter, they lost $21 million. Um, they, yeah, they, they lost $21 million. But then they show all of the things that they've added back to actually get this positive EPS, this positive adjusted EPS number. And the main one is share-based compensation. And that share-based compensation has been increasing every quarter. So in the last quarter, they lost $21 million, but they they gave out $106 million of share-based compensation. So when you net that out, it looks like they're super profitable and they actually profited $80 million. But that's a little misleading because <laughs> share-based compensation is a real expense. Just because they don't have to pay cash out for it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't imply that labor is free. And the issue with the share-based compensation is that, yeah, it can save them cash. It's a non-cash expense, but you as a shareholder, you're going to be affected by the dilution that comes from that and the pressure that the stock is going to face from that when all of these, these uh, stock options and, and restricted stock units get sold into the market. Because if you're paying employees with stock, the only way that they can realize that money and actually spend it is by selling their shares. So you're going to get more shares on the market and you're going to get pressure from these, these employees selling their shares. Another big problem with stock-based compensation is that it works great when the stock's going up and you're in a strong bull market because everyone wants shares. They see that it's going up 30%, 40%, 100% every year. They're like, this is awesome. Pay me because I'm actually getting twice my pay because the stock keeps doubling. So that's awesome. Give me as much, I'll, I'll, I'll forego some cash give me stock and I'll sell it and, and make even more money. Now, it doesn't work so well when the stock's in a downtrend and we're in a bear market and the stock price doesn't look so hot. So when the stock's dropping and people have all of these stock units, they kind of panic and they're like, whoa, dang, I need, a, I need to convert this to cash before it keeps going lower. So then you get even more selling pressure and it works even worse on the downside. And then it's also hard to incentivize people to take these stock options and to compensate them with stock when the stock's not doing so well, because it's kind of, they're like, we don't, we don't really want to take that risk. We don't want a stock that's not hot. So maybe give me cash instead. And it's harder then for the company to save on cash and use those stock options uh, and add that back. So you should definitely look into that and see what the structure is and, and what they're adding back to get to that adjusted number. And yeah, you'll mainly see it with technology companies, so so keep keep an eye on that. All right, thanks, Mike. So so what I call adjusted EPS, my own term, is marketing EPS. That's their marketing version. That's where they can put lipstick on the pig and they can try to smooth out bad events or whatever. Now, I'm not saying that it's not legitimate sometimes if they've got a one-off sale of an asset that gives them millions. Uh, then, then they can say, listen, this is a one-time item. We don't expect this to be in our income every year. Or if they had a one-time extraordinary loss due to a hurricane or something else, then they shouldn't be punished for that for long-term. Point being is, 
some of the uh, 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 marketing EPS or adjusted EPS is just that. It's marketing. It's manipulation. It's making the books look a little bit better because they can put their own, uh, you know, they can put their own summary on what the numbers mean. They can kind of put a, 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 a paragraph or they can write a little bit about it, give a little description. So sometimes it's legitimate, but sometimes it's, it's, it is manipulation. That's why if you're going to invest using fundamental metrics, if you're going to invest using fundamentals, especially if you're holding for mid or long term, you've got to be able to uh, reconcile their EPS to other companies in their same sector. You got to compare companies, different companies in the same sector, and you got to understand the company's own EPS within their own company. If you don't understand that, if you're doing fundamental analysis and you're not reconciling EPS, you're a rookie. I mean, I hate to tell you that. If you're just reading the EPS number off the screen and just taking that as gospel, you're a rookie. The real, the professionals, they do a deep dive in the fundamentals and they reconcile the EPS number. So in any event, all right, Don, I just wanted to go. Thanks, Mike. That was actually very good. And uh, we're going to put a little summary short, like a little short on the YouTube channel here in a couple days. And then he's going to do a longer EPS where he does a, a 30 minute or whatever educational video where he starts with how to calculate EPS going down to EPS. Uh, partially diluted, then fully diluted EPS. He'll go the, through the whole thing to where you actually assume that all the warrants, rights, convertible bonds, and convertible preferred stock has been exercised and all the shares have been fully exercised and all the potential shares outstanding are, are taken in consideration in the calculation. All right, Don, uh, back to you. All right, thanks. Uh, yesterday on our morning call, we we were talking about uh, the, the, the S&P had been down two days. Uh, Apple announced that they're starting, or sorry, China announced that they're banning the iPhone and government agencies. And Apple being a big percentage of uh, the indexes, it carried over and we we're looking at pretty significant gap downs in the S&P 500 and on the NASDAQ 100. So, uh, I mentioned this in last night's video, two days down and then you get a gap on the third day down. That is not the time to chase short. That's the time to be looking for a reversal. And during the call, Connor pointed out that uh, a book that he uh, really likes showed some statistics that gaps on Thursdays are filled 82% of the time. So we were all, it raised everybody's eyebrows. We're like, really, seriously, they're filled 82 percent of the time on a and, tuesday uh, or thursday <laughs> or thursday yeah and guess what we filled yesterday's gap on the nasdaq 100 and the s p 500 we didn't close positive but we filled the gap and uh sounded like a great topic for the podcast so connor is going to talk a little bit about gaps and gaps being filled take it away connor yeah so like first if any of the listeners aren't really sure what a gap is it's just basically when um the next day's cash session regular opening price is greater or lower than the previous um, session, creating a price gap in the chart. And as you know, many things can cause these gaps, earning surprises, economic reports, um, takeover surprises, et cetera. And one thing that 
always sticks out to me is the reason for the gap isn't necessarily as important important as how price reacts to the gap. Um, and, and markets fluctuate. They go from good news is good news, um, good news is bad news, and vice versa. And that's something that we've seen uh, switch on and off many times over the last two years as we've transitioned from bear to bull market and just many different uh, market cycles. And I think one of the best examples is the October low in the S&P. That was a massive gap down on a horrible CPI. So emotions are running so high, right? People are getting stopped out of positions. And then other people who are flat, they see the gap down, they think the world's ending, so they short the hole. And so it's just like, there's a lot of volatility that comes with it. And that was bad news, but um, price didn't take it as bad news after once the market opened, it completely reversed it. And yeah, Don's showing it right now. So that's like one of the best examples. And and that actually marked the low for the market. So that that just should show you how important gaps are. So when, when looking at the gaps, um, I'm going to run into the statistics from the book uh, in a second, but these statistics, um, they work better in certain scenarios. So if the volume on the gap is light, which is more common than not, then the market's likely not interest, interested in the news or it's already priced it in. And these are the days where um, gaps have a high probability of filling. And then uh, a gap that's on huge volume, uh, you can call it like a professional breakaway gap. And that has a much less probability of filling as institutions have probably positioned for that gap. And um, if volume's coming in, it's just kind of like at, gonna add fuel to the move. So those can be breakaway gaps. Um, and you know, if, if there's big news and the market's really set up to move, there's gonna be huge volume and you'll be able to recognize that once the market opens. Um, and another cool statistic is most breakaway gaps, which I just talked about, those occur on a Monday. And that's partly due to the fact that um, over the weekend, there can be so many things that come to light um, in, the, in the economy and the world. So if you have a big gap up, down on a Monday, those are the days where there's the highest probability that it doesn't fill. And, and it's called, you could call it like a professional breakaway gap. So yeah, so from the book, Mastering the Trade by John Carter, he had an awesome section in the book and he gave these statistics. So 65% of gaps get filled on Monday or 65% of the time, 77% of the time on Tuesday, 79% on Wednesday, 82% on Thursday and 78% on Friday. So obviously this, you're not gonna just trade off these statistics, but it's it's a good thing to have in the back of your mind and, and it's good to know. Um, yeah, so let's, is that chart number one, Don? Yes, sir. I, I got a quick yeah, question. Okay. I got a quick question, Connor. Yeah. Does he give any thoughts or hypothesis for reasons why the different days have different percentages like is Thursday it's the day before the Friday market close into the weekend or I mean does he does he have any yeah um he I would have to check back and look um but this was just basically the raw numbers from back testing okay okay like fair a, enough a, yeah fair amount of years yeah so <clears throat> this is chart one this was so what I, I'm going to go through about like six different ones and try to like give different examples, but 
Chart number one, this was a Monday morning gap. And it, so like we said, like I just said, Monday morning gaps usually don't fill actually. So this is a Monday morning gap, pricing it never came close to filling it. And it basically closed unchanged from the gap. But sometimes what this does is if you get a gap that maybe doesn't go so much after the market opens, but it holds those gains, that can often set up the move for the following day. So look at the following day and the market had a nice run. So that's another thing that you can look at. So if you get a nice gap and it doesn't give up those gains, then you might see continuation later on in the week showing that, you know, buyers are willing to buy at that price of the gap. So, so if it holds, uh, it doesn't go down, but it holds, that's bullish. Yeah. So th it, there's so many different examples, variables, but that's just saying that um, the market gapped up. It didn't necessarily go anywhere in the, op in the, in the cash session, but it held that gap showing strength. And the next day it had a really nice follow through. Trying to go to chart two, Don. Yeah, so this this is another breakaway gap. This was um, this is about a thirty point gap, and once it uh, so on all these charts, I have the VWAP, which is the volume weighted average price, and this is a good thing to to use on a on a five minute chart to to gauge the trend of the day. Um, so it gapped up. And it, it broke its uh, opening range highs and it just held above the VWAP all day showing strength. And, and that's what you call a trend day. And then, so now next two charts, those are going to be gap downs and, and holds. So the opposite. So this, this was, a, was a gap down and right away the volume was high, broke the VWAP right away in the, in the first 30 minutes and um, just you know, there was selling pressure all day. So this is a case of where, you know, some, th there can be, you know, chop days or trend days. And these examples have been trend days and no buyers stepped up and trended below the view app all day. Um, yeah, you can go to chart number four. And now this, this was an example of a gap fill. Um, this yeah, so this, yeah, so this was a 40 point gap down in the morning and it, right when the market opened in the cash session, it shot right back up, filling that gap and then coming back down. So that's another case. If, if you get a gap down and the gap gets filled right away and then comes back into that uh, gap low, then that could tell you the market might be choppy today with, with no direction or range, but like I was talking about those emotions, the market gap down, people are getting stopped out, people are shorting the hole, and then it reverses because the market's always trying to punish the most amount of people. And then chart number five. And this was another example. Um, I think these are sometimes the hardest ones. So it's like 40 point gap, gap up in the morning and just kind of hovered around high day for the first hour of the day broke the VWAP and then came and filled the gap. And it's just the opposite psychology of market participants. You gap up, people are maybe underinvested, so they need to get in the market and then it just shoots right back down, probably stopping them out. So, so those are, um, so that's why sometimes maybe 
you're just better off to wait, let the market digest, see, see what it wants to do after a gap up or down. And then the last chart, this was another gap fill, gap up, followed by, you know, 30 minutes to an hour of follow through strength. And then weakness came across and just totally came back down and filled the gap. So, you know, with these statistics, um, it definitely makes you raise an eyebrow for a gap up and down thinking that maybe it's better off to give the market an hour into the day to see if it fills the gap. Because like I said, those statistics more than times it does. And one of the key things to watch for on a gap is the volume. That's, that's what um, John Carter in the book, he stressed that a lot. Cause if it's a low volume gap, there's a very likely chance that it gets filled. But like I said, the breakaway gaps on high volume, that's when the institutions are, are just gonna, are positioned for that and likely to keep it in that direction. So yeah, that, that's, that's some stuff on gaps. All right, thanks, Connor. Don, Don, I did want to bring up a, a, a something very quickly. So, folks, on our YouTube channel, you can just go to revereasset.com. I mean, just type in Revere Asset, do a search for Revere Asset only, and it'll pull up our YouTube channel. Don did a one-hour-long video on gap rules probably about three years ago, Don, three or four years ago, maybe about two. It was really, really good, and hopefully oh, – wow. Hopefully Zach will check to make sure that that's in the in the Revere University. We're rejiggering the uh, Revere Asset website, so on one section is our uh, daily market insights, our Don's daily market insight videos, tomorrow's insights. That's in one. Then our pod, these podcasts, and then Revere University, where we put in educational webinars that either do using moving averages, relative strength, sell rules, whatever. Don did a very good one on gap rules, and I'm not sure it's under the Revere University tab, but if it's not, we'll go make sure it is very shortly. But you can go watch that. That's an awesome video. All right, Don, go ahead. Well, we are now going to go to uh, our own version of Spinal Tap. Most people have 10 charts, but not Teddy. He has 11 charts. So let's turn the speakers up to 11, Ted, and blast through these 11 charts. Daddy 11. All right, all right. Um, so going to go through my routine weekly breath update. The first one, like always, is the S&P 500 weekly chart. And the, the advanced decline lines on this is just quite noisy for this week. We're just kind of consulting, so nothing there. But one thing I wanted to note on the actual S&P 500 chart is that we're witnessing fractals on the weekly chart. And essentially what a fractal is are repeated patterns across different scales. Um, it's a mathematical phenomenon uh, in the 1900s. So on this chart, in terms of trading in the markets and technical analysis, we see the, the initial beginnings of a cup with handle forming within a larger cup with handle. And this is a, this is a phenomenon that you can kind of see in all time frames you can see a couple of handles on the monthly chart the weekly chart the daily chart all the way to the five minute one minute chart um so that is that's just the one thing i want to know on this this picture um actually one more thing since the beginning of march if you look at the volume bars the up volume bars are on balance greater than the down volume bars and within this last eight to not six to seven weeks we're seeing contracting volume within this bigger cup with handle so that is definitely a good, good sign. The next one, as usual, is the NASDAQ. 
And once again, I mean, the advanced decline line, nothing really is still in a downtrend. However, just like what I said about the F100 weekly handle pattern, you have a cup with handle beginning to form within a larger cup with handle. And these often serve as like greater confirmation to the, to the price trend that um, give us an indication of what may or may not happen ahead. Continue on, we're gonna talk about the net highs and lows. And before I start, I wanted to say like, it's a pretty peculiar marker right now. Um, there's very much bifurcated action between the mega caps and then the, the rest of the market. We've discussed on many times on previous podcasts um, that we continue to see this bifurcation. And here's what I want, like in these next few charts, I'll kind of illustrate what I mean by that. Um, so this first one is a S&P 500 chart with the New York Stock Exchange net highs and lows, as well as the new highs and new lows separated above. And so I had a red circle as well as a green circle. And we can see this um, contrast that during the 2022 bear market, we had pretty much solely net lows. And now during this like tra transitory period, we're seeing this oscillation between net highs versus a period of net lows. And here you can, you can see that as we go from the left to the right, net lows and net highs are kind of contracting. So it's still this very volatile choppy period. Um, we had a period of directional trend from June to July, but overall it, we, we aren't in, we quite aren't in a true healthy uptrend until we see significant net highs, just like what we saw um, in the bear market, but just the polar opposite. Moving on to the NASDAQ, net highs and lows. It's painting a weaker picture. If you just glance at the net lows, you pretty much only see red, even during the, the uptrend that we had in June and July, which was primarily led by the mega caps. Um, yeah, there's nothing too much to say on this one. So continue on like usual. Are the McKellen summation indexes, um, the NISI and the NASI. And so I noted that we hooked up and then now we broke through the 10 day moving average, but now hooking down again. But this is this is typically typically normal as the indexes are kind of going sideways and forming a new base. So obviously there will definitely be some noise on these secondary indicators as well. The NASI, same, same message here. Um, we hooked up, broke through the 10 day moving average and hooking down now, but this is typically expected, like I said before. So moving on are the percentage of stocks above various moving averages for the S&P 500. And this is where the bifurcation kind of, um, this is where you can see like the bifurcation. As I circle in green, the percentage of stocks below the 200 day moving average are making lower lows relative to price. So although price is holding up under the surface, more and more stocks are falling below their 200 day moving averages. And so uh, on balance, stocks aren't yet moving in earnest. And we must remember that in any market, you can pick and choose and select a few names or even a basket of names that, that might be making good moves. Um, but oftentimes we have to make sure we aren't falling into survivorship bias because you can always find stocks are acting well and then perhaps ignore stocks that are failing. Um, so we, like in this business, we want to be in the market with all the probabilities where most of the probabilities are aligned in your favor, backed by the general market sector and overall stock action on balance. 
And then the, the percentage of stocks above the 50 day are, are at 35% as well, which is quite weak. And also, yeah. And so continuing on, Don has a NASDAQ percentage of stocks above various moving averages. And here, both the percentage of stocks above the 50 and percentage of stocks above the 200 are making lower lows while price holds up. So this continues to support my assertion that the indexes are primarily held up by the larger caps, not necessarily just the Magnificent 7, but like the top 20, 30 stocks that resemble most of the weighting of these indexes. Um, so we, we want to see those turn around, at least get above 50% level to see a healthier and true uptrend. On to sentiment, just, con just some more noise in the CNN fear and greed. We've essentially been oscillating between, the, the, between fear and greed and then chopping around. Um, currently we're at neutral territory. So sentiment is quite balanced on this specific indicator. The AAII sentiment survey paints a volatile nature of investors' emotions. We went from below historic, historical averages in bullish sentiment and above average in bear sentiment to now the polar opposite. So bullish sentiment is now above average and bear sentiment is now below average as the index has rallied. It just really shows that price, price changes sentiment quite quite dramatically. And um, we, we need to ring out more people and see some more fear in before perhaps we can take off again. And finally, the NAM. This week, there really isn't, isn't anything notable to note here. Just chopping around and seeing some mean reversion. Money managers appeal, appear to realize that they're irrational for selling too much of their stock and now are correcting some of their mistakes. And perhaps this is the current equilibrium for now. All right, Ted, appreciate it very much. And Dan, that wraps it from a technical standpoint for the week. You can uh, bring us on home. Hey, Ted, by the way, I like the way that you drew circles around those charts because they can get a little bit busy, but it helps the the list, the watcher, the viewer kind of focus in on exactly what what you're what you're looking at instead of the entire chart. Folks, normally it's the last few inches on the right side of the chart. That's important. Uh, Tim used to always say anybody can read the left side of the chart. It's trying to read the right side of the chart or interpret the probabilities going forward. That's that's uh, important. Folks, listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Just send them to revereasset.com. Up in the right-hand corner, there's a subscribe button. They can put in their name and their email address, and we won't spam them or reach out to them. It's up to them to reach out to us and tell us they want a complimentary portfolio review. They want a stock or a couple stocks discussed on the show, or a topic they want discussed on the show, uh, or if they just have any questions uh, about Revere and how we uh, manage portfolios. Uh, you can email any of us, uh, dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, michael, ted, or connor at revereasset.com. And you can always, always, always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Have a safe and happy weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. On your money. Because it's not how much you make in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep.
Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.